we have been working through a series called Tapestry. Um, and in Tapestry, we've kind of talked about how there are lots of different threads that go from Genesis to Revelation, a lot of threads that lead to one thread and the person of Jesus Christ. So we've talked about creation in Genesis 1, and we've talked about the fall and the mercy of God and light of the fall in Genesis 3. We've talked about God's covenant, and then last week we talked about the people of God. This week, we will be discuss, discussing a really easy topic, okay? The law. Don't fall asleep yet, okay? You'll be okay. Um, I'm really excited about today. So if you are an outline, note-taker type person, here is your outline for today. We have three questions, okay? Um, what or who is the origin of the law, and why do we have it? So the what, why, how. Um, then what is the problem with the law? And then what is the solution to the law? So that's your outline. It's very simple. Um, let me read to you from Romans 3, verse 19. It will be on the screen as well, but I encourage you to look at it in your copy if you have one in front of you. Paul says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. And this was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, and it was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be, the, might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So when I first became a Christian, it was in high school, um, I realized very quickly, and you may be like me, um, I realized very quickly that the God in the Old Testament was a little bit more grumpier than the God in the New Testament, right? So in Genesis, um, they eat an apple, right? So they eat from a tree, they eat an apple, and he's like, oh yeah, you, your family, every single person that ever exists is now cursed because you ate an apple, right? So he's a little grumpy, but in the New Testament, um, you know, he's like, come to me, Jesus says, come to me, all you who are weary. Right? He sits with the thief. He sits with the adulterer. And then in the New Testament, someone messes up, and he's like, I'm going to burn this city to the ground. So in my mind, what happened is I began to think that there's a God of the Old Testament, and there's a God of the New Testament. And like maybe as God just got older, he just chilled out, kind of, um, <laughs> which makes no sense at all. But what I began to think in my foolishness is that, okay, there was plan A— the Old Testament, and then there was plan B, the New Testament, that in plan A, God gives them the Ten Commandments. So what we think of when we think of the law, but then 2,000 years later, he looks around and he's like, man, I really messed that one up, huh? Like, this is an absolute mess. What was I thinking? So he had to go to plan B because plan A didn't work, that at some point the father gathered Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and he's like, okay, boys, that didn't work. Like, you gave them the 10, right? Yeah, I, I saw you give them the 10. I know you gave them the 10, but it's not working, so what do we do? And Jesus is like, I volunteer as tribute, right? And, and he's in, and he pops down to earth, 
And he's like, I will fix the problem. I'll handle it. But that's a really terrible way to think about our Bible, right? <laughs> like, it doesn't work like that. And so when we think about the entirety of our Bible, we have to think of it like this, okay? It's a promise made and a promise fulfilled. It's not plan A it's, and plan B. It's phase one and phase two. That in the Old Testament, what we see is that the law reveals a promise that is fulfilled in the New Testament and the person and work of Jesus Christ. So I want to start us with our first question. What or who is the origin of the law and why do we have it? Now on the surface, that's an easy answer because we all know that God is the origin of the law. God is the originator of all things. So he is the origin of all things. He's uncreated, right? He is the creator. There's never been a time when God has not existed. He was before all things. He's the creator of all things and he is self-sufficient. So he has never been dependent on anything other than himself. And since he is the origin of all things, creator of all things, and dependent on all things, not dependent on anything, he is also the standard of what is right. Does that make sense? So he determines what is right and what is wrong. He is the originator of the law. The law comes from him. And now it gets interesting when you move from the who or the what to the why. Okay. Why does the law exist? First, the law exists because it reveals who God is and who he intended us to be. So let me explain that. When you hear the word law or the law of God, don't compare it to like a, gov- like a law that a government entity would make, like a king or a senator, that biblically the law is a reflection of God's character. It's an expression of his nature. So for example, most of us in here are familiar with the Ten Commandments and some way or another. So um, in the Ten Commandments, when he says, don't lie or bear false witness, he says that because why? Because he doesn't lie. He is a God of integrity. He is a God of truth. So the law is meant to reveal who God is to us. God is not a liar. Now, the intent of the law is not only to reveal God's nature, but listen, it's also intended to reveal our nature. Before Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of the tree, they were not liars. They weren't. They were not intended to be liars. They were unable to lie. They were sinless before a holy God. So when God says, do not lie, he is revealing to us our intended nature as well. In other words, he is saying, I do not lie, and you were made in my image, therefore you shall not lie. Does that make sense? And it can be tempting to think of the law of God as these rules that God made up so that we would just be morally good people? While yes, being moral is a byproduct of the law, that's actually a shallow way to think of why the law exists. Because the law gives us an insight to see this is who our God is. This is his character. It reveals who he is. Don't lie. Why? Well, because he's not a liar. He's not a liar. He has never and will never lie to you. I don't know if you knew that. He will never lie to you. He is unable to lie. And you, you were not created to be a liar. That was not your intended nature. The second thing the law reveals is it reveals the joy, hope, and satisfaction that can be found in community with God. And it's important to know that the law itself was never, and we'll talk about this more later, but the law itself was never intended to be salvation for us. What the law does is it gives us a way where we can find joy, where we can find 
hope because that's only found in true community with God. You can search for it in other places. You're not going to find it. It's only found in God. So let's take the first commandment in the Ten Commandments. He says, you shall have, this is in Deuteronomy 6 and Exodus 20. He says, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay? So in other words, make me and me alone supreme. And here's the promise if you do. If you seek me, if you seek me alone, beauty, satisfaction, fulfillment, energy, hope is yours. And I will be pleased. Now, let's take the last commandment. He says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field or his male servant or his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor. So don't covet your neighbor's wife, his car, his job, his boat, and even his dog, which some of you might want my dog Springer, but you can't have him. And so here's the promise, okay? If you will learn to see the world through what you have been blessed with, and what you have been given, rather than a life that is built on comparison to others, that you would have contentment, then you will have satisfaction, fulfillment, beauty, energy, and hope. So the law reveals the character of God, and if you, get, and if you can keep them, if you can keep them, you will get to taste and know who God is. So it points to a promise, that if you are able to keep the law perfectly, then you will be able to fully know God. You will be able to experience his presence. Which leads to our second question. What's the problem with that? <laughs> we can't do it, right? We can't do it. We cannot keep the law perfectly. You can't go through the Ten Commandments and say you've kept them all. It's impossible. We are not good at obeying the law. And like, you know that. Like, you're like, yes, I know, here we go. Like, he's going to tell me how bad I am. Yeah, you, you know that about yourself, but, but it's easy to forget. And, and hear, hear this. The stain of sin goes deeper than you think. Like your assumption about how bad sin is, it's probably deeper than that. And, and so I, I, for me, for a long time, I th when I thought of Adam and Eve eating from the tree and sin being introduced in the world, I kind of thought of it like an oopsie, right? Like Adam and Eve had an oopsie. It's kind of like when I go to H-E-B and I'm getting, and Katie wants me to get um, cream for coffee, and I get like the sugar-free cream, and I get home, and she's like, what is this trash? And I'm like, oops, my bad, right? Um, that's kind of how I would think of Adam and Eve, but it's not an oopsie in the garden, okay? God's response in giving Adam and Eve the curse is appropriate, because they broke perfect fellowship with the God of the universe by introducing sin into a sinless System And when sin was introduced into the world, it was like a virus that went into a computer that infected every single file and software. And now in our flesh, we are incapable of keeping God's law. We are incapable of about it. Think, think about it. Exodus 20, God gives them the Ten Commandments, right? Um, the first commandment is don't worship other gods. So he had just brought them out of Egypt, a place that was littered with a multitude of gods. And God, think about it, God systematically in the plagues destroyed every single God they had. Destroyed them all, right in front of the Israelites. Um, the, the plagues, you know, <laughs> the plagues wasn't God just being mean to the Egyptian, like, boom, here's some locusts, right? It wasn't him just being mean to them, there was a point to it. They had gods that controlled the air, they had gods that controlled the crops, they had gods that controlled the water, on and on it goes, they had a God for everything, and what does God do? He destroys them all. He sends frogs gnats, 
flies. He kills their animals. He gives them boils. Ouch. He sends locusts to destroy their crops. He makes the water of the Nile turn to blood. He's not just being mean, mean to them. He is showing them that they are worshiping false gods. That's what he's showing them. He's telling them, I am the one true God. I run this place. So he gives them the Ten Commandments and tells them, hey, don't go back to those other gods. Don't do it. You saw me destroy them. They're false. They are not worthy of worship. That's chapter 20. And then what happens in chapter 32? They take all the gold they have, boil it down, make a calf, and worship it. We're not good at obeying God's law. We're not good at it. And here's what the law reveals. Attempting to follow the law reveals that you can't follow the law, right? And our failure to follow the law reveals our sin. The law leads to death under the curse of sin, and we are guilty before him. Make no mistake. We are guilty before him. We are condemned by him, and we are separated from him. So, Because we are incapable as a sinful people to keep God's law, we are condemned and thus cannot fully know God. Are you encouraged yet? (laughs) Just hang on. Just hang on. Second, the second thing the law reveals is hypothetically, even if you do manage to obey much of God's law, it does not produce worship, beauty, satisfaction, and hope because you're still a sinner but rather keeping, trying to live a life that is disciplined morality does what? It creates arrogance, pride, and judgment. That we will use our disciplined morality to look down on others. It leads to dissatisfaction with yourself. You're never happy. You're never satisfied because you can never live up to God's law. It asks you to be perfect. That means every thought, action, every motive must be holy. And if it's not, you are guilty. If it's not, you are guilty. The curse of sin is that you will never be perfect. And does that just sound exhausting? Yeah, because it is. And some of you feel that right now. You are absolutely exhausted. Disciplined morality that comes from your own strength and your own abilities without worship is always exhausting. You are so tired and you are frustrated, one, that you aren't as good as you should be, And two, you are frustrated with everyone else for not thinking and acting like you do. And so what happens in the circle is we get angry, we look at something we're not supposed to, we do something we didn't mean to do, something we regret saying something, and then to remedy that, we go to church. And then we fill our minds with a lot of knowledge about God, and we try discipline morality again, and then what happens? We get angry again. We sin again, and then we do, you go through this same circle. It doesn't work. You're always trying to prove something, always trying to earn something. So the problem with the law is that it reveals that we are guilty before him because we're not perfect. And then when we try to be perfect, it produces arrogance, and we are still in sin. That's phase one of our Bible, that God makes a covenant with his people, and he gives them the law. Okay? And he says, if you can keep these all these laws, then we will be okay. But the fact that they have the law reveals to them that they can't keep the law. (laughs) And then it reveals that they are not okay with God. And since they have broken broken God's law, there needs to be judgment for that. That sin 
must be judged. Which brings us to Romans 3, verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being, for by works, your disciplined morality will not make you justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So the curse of the law is that it leads to an understanding that you are a sinner, and God demands that we are accountable to that sin. And and I would just ask this to a specific group in the room. If you're not a believer, like you wouldn't say that you um, believe the things that we're saying. Um, You're here checking it out, or you're a seeker, um, you're trying to understand, but, but you wouldn't say that you're there yet. I wonder what you would make of this word accountable in verse 19. And I would ask, to whom or to what are you accountable to? Yourself? Is yourself the highest entity that you will ever be accountable to? Is that the highest one? And and, and let me ask this, do you think that you are rightly included under God's law as a sinner? And when I talk about the law and how you are a sinner, does that make you nervous? Does it make you scared? Because this law only speaks condemnation to you. Romans 3 is meant to be a wrecking ball, both to the one who thinks that they can be a Christian by their disciplined morality without worship, and to the one who would reject God as creator and authority altogether. It is meant to tear that apart. So we have a big problem. We cannot enjoy God, we, we can't be in his presence. We are sinners. So what's the solution to that? Our last question. Romans three twenty one. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So what does that mean? The righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Well, all the Old Testament points towards a promise. A promised Savior that would come from outside of the law, but also would be inside and under the law. This is explained in Galatians 4, 4. And it says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those that were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. The law itself was never meant to save us. We can't keep it, and we can't be righteous. So the prophets and the law bear witness to a hope, saying there is hope that comes from outside of the law itself. It all points to a promise. Verse 22 the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So what's the solution? Well, you actually do see the solution in the law itself, that the law demands that an innocent sacrifice must be made in order to have forgiveness of sin, and it's all centered on this word propitiation. And if you've tuned me out since then, I would encourage you, this is the most important part of anything I'll say. Make no mistake, once we come face to face with the law we cannot keep, we deserve God's judgment. Propitiation is a big word that means to appease wrath, and we need to be held accountable. Our God is a just God. He is incapable of acting unjustly. He cannot look at sin and just go, oh well, it's not that big of a deal. He's incapable of that. 
and the ultimate display of God's wrath is eternal condemnation. We call that, as Christians, hell. It's, it's something we don't talk about as much, and a lot of times when we do, we kind of mess it up. And so it, it's just something that you don't hear talked about that much, but Scripture is clear. For those who would reject Christ, there is eternal condemnation. Heaven and hell is real, and we believe this. Now, when I was in college, um, I was a freshman at Mary Hunt Baylor. I was, uh, everyone, every freshman went to this class called Intro to Christian Ministry. And the prof that taught it was Dr. Leroy Kemp. Now, some of you might know who Dr. Leroy Kemp is. Um, he's a legend in this community. He was pastor at First Belton 20 years. He was professor for like 30 years, blah, 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 blah. So if you were a freshman, you were excited about Dr. Leroy Kemp's class, okay? Um, he had this real deep voice, and when you talk to him, you just got chills. Like, he was like, hey, Colton, how are you doing? And I'm like, oh, who are you, you know? And so, and so you're just excited about Dr. Leroy Kemp. And um, we, I'll never forget we came into this class, it was about four weeks into the semester, and um, everyone's just, you know, chit-chatting real loud. And then all of a sudden, this guy um, in the back of the room just said something, he, he was talking really loud, and excuse my language here, but um, someone said something, and he said, oh, hell no, right? And everyone just kind of went silent. Like, oh, did he just say that in their Christian ministry class, right? And um, Dr. Leroy Kemp's, his, his face just kind of popped up. And then everyone was just staring at him, right? Like, oh, what's he going to do, right? Is he going to go after this guy? And I'll never forget, um, he got up out of his desk, he walked to the window, and he just kind of stared out the window for like 20 seconds. He, was, he knew what he was doing. He was building up some suspense. Um, and then he just, he went, hell, the judgment of God. And then he looked at us, and he went, class dismissed. <laughs> and we were like, what in the world just happened? <laughs> Um, and we all walked out of that class just silent. It had a profound impact on me. And, and at, my best friend was in that class, and we still talk about that moment to this day. And that brought me on a trajectory to go, is hell actually real? Is that a thing? Is heaven actually real? And man, if you look through the scriptures, it's very real. I mean, Jesus says in Mark 9, 43, he says, if your hand causes you to sin... Cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame with two feet to be thrown, than to be thrown into hell. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And then Revelation 20:15. if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. There must be punishment for sin. God's law demands it. A holy God cannot be in the presence of a sinner. And the only way to be in his presence is to not sin, to be perfect, and we cannot do it. And we're exhausted. So phase two of God's plan was to put forward someone on our behalf. That's phase two. Someone outside of the law that could fulfill the law. As Romans 3 puts it, someone who would be a propitiation to appease God's wrath on our behalf. So propitiation is one of those um, images that God gives us that's a root of a lot of the ideas we see in Scripture, that throughout our Bible, God will use several images and ideas to communicate what he's doing in his work. One of those is justification, which Paul talks about in this passage. It's a courtroom image. It's a picture of a guilty person showing up at a courtroom and being declared right, that someone else would take their prison sentence. The Bible uses slavery language 
to bring about this picture of redemption, right? That you are enslaved by your sin and your shame, and someone came in and bought you from that. They freed you from that. We see images of a conquering warrior, that sin and shame rules over you, and a conquering came in and defeated that, defeated that sin and shame and brought you out. And now he, with his grace and hope and love, rules over you. We see the picture of expiation. I think it's my favorite one. It's a picture of a waterfall, that you, you are dirty. You are covered with shame and guilt, and like a waterfall, his blood washes you clean. We see a dinner table, the picture of reconciliation, that me and the Father are at odds, but Jesus has gathered us at the table, and we can fellowship together. All those images are rooted in one big one, propitiation. See, by way of promise, God had created a system in the law, a sacrificial system, to make God's people temporarily right with God. Matthew talked about this last week, so I would encourage you to go and listen to that. We're not going to jump into it, but all throughout the prophet books, you will see them reference the temple. Jonah, in Jonah chapter 2, when he's in his sin and his guilt in the belly of the fish in chapter 2, what does he do? He says, I will look towards the temple. So there's something about the temple. Appropriation is temple imagery. The temple was placed in the center of the nation, in the center of their city, and in the center of the temple was a room. And that room was called the Holy of Holies. It was a picture of where God dwelt. They believed that God dwelt in that room. And no man could enter that room because God is holy and man is not. And there was only one thing, one thing in this room. It was a box, okay? It was covered in gold and it had two big angels on it. Um, And in that box were the commandments of God, the law carved in stone. And the idea was, if you can keep these commandments, then you could approach that box. You could be in that room, but no one could. So the people of God cannot be with God because of their sin. You cannot enjoy my presence. And yet, a day would come when a priest would walk in with an innocent lamb and a rope tied around their ankle. (laughs) Because if they entered that room as a sinful person and they died, they didn't want a body stinking up that room so they could pull them out with a rope. But the priest would approach that box. Specifically, they would approach the lid the box, and the lid had its own name. It was called the Hilasterion, the mercy seat. Because God told his people, I will meet with you at the mercy seat. And that priest would take the blood of an innocent lamb, and he would cover the lid with it. He would just cover the lid. And the picture was this. When God looks at his law, he doesn't see our sin revealed. What does he see? The blood of an innocent sacrifice. And his wrath is appeased. That's propitiation. He doesn't see my sin, but rather he sees a payment. He sees innocence. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation to appease God's wrath by his blood. This is the gospel. And you know what the most incredible thing about that? Not, in, not that that's not incredible in itself. The most incredible thing about that is that God did not do this. Jesus did not go to the cross out of duty or frustration. He wasn't just ticked off at us. So he's like, well, I guess I'll die for them since they can't fix it themselves. Hebrews 12, 2, 
says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. For the joy that was set before, it was for his joy that he shed his blood for you. Did you know that? It was with joy that he would free you from that prison sentence. It was with joy that he would free you from slavery. It was with joy that he would conquer the sin and shame that ruled your heart and mind and put in its place grace, hope, and love. It was with joy that he would wash you clean, and it was with joy that he would seat you at the table with the Father. It was with joy that he washes you clean. And here's the deal. If you believe that, if you believe that Jesus was God and he came and died and his blood covers your sin, if you believe that, you are no longer under the law that condemns you, but rather you are under a new law. It's called the law of Christ. That's phase two, that Christ has fulfilled the law. The old covenant is fulfilled, and, in, and if you have faith in Christ, then you are now under the new covenant, under the law of Christ. What does that mean? <laughs> under the law of Christ. Another way scripture refers to it is that you are now under grace. You are now under grace. Romans six fourteen. for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. To, to say that I am under the law of Christ is to say, you know what? I believe that Christ's blood was sufficient. I believe that Christ's blood covers the law of God that I cannot keep. And because of what Christ did, God sees me as though I am made new. I am redeemed. Romans 10, 14, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness for everyone who believes. So to be under the law of Christ is to be free from a law that would condemn you from your sin but rather the law of Christ declares you righteous because of Christ's work on the cross. So hear me. I know that's a lot of moving parts, but hear this. If you constantly live under this voice of condemnation, if that's your life, this constant voice of condemnation that says you are not good enough, that says because you are not perfect, because you don't do what I ask, because you sin, then you don't belong to me. This voice that says, you're sitting here and you're uncomfortable because you know, I don't belong in this place. And the voice, this voice is telling you, you don't belong with these people. Look at how good they are. Look at how perfect they are. You don't belong here. If that's the voice that you hear, you need to know that you are being lied to. That voice that is condemning you is lying to you. And it is confusing you and it is misguiding you. That is the enemy who has you in the palm of his hand. Scripture says that if you have faith in Christ, if you believe that he, he actually did die on the cross and raised from the grave and his blood covers you, then you are not condemned. You are free. And his work, his blood covers you. And you are not under that law that condemns you, but rather you are under the law of Christ. You are under grace. 6.14, For sin will have no dominion under you, over you, since you are not under law, under grace. Now, here's the other side of this. You might say, okay, that's cool. Does that mean I can do whatever I want? <laughs> Does that mean I can just go sin, 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 sin without consequences? No, because in Romans 6.15, he says this right after that. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Being under the law of grace doesn't just free you from your sin, but here's what it does. It also creates in you a transformed heart that would pursue God. 
that the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you, that the Spirit that dwelt, that God who dwelt in the temple now lives in you. God, in you. <laughs> We've Americanized this to say uh, Father, Son, Holy Bible, uh, but it's no, it's Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that lives inside of you. And so this isn't just permission to sin. No, you have a transformed heart because God inside of you is making sense of his word, gathering you with his people, helping you to sing songs and make sense of those lyrics that come from scripture and to really worship. So let's flesh this out a little bit more. What does it mean to be under the law of Christ? Two practicals, okay? Being under the law of Christ does two things. First, and this is important, it produces a humility in us that makes us joyfully kneel before the cross. Two words that have no place in the faith family of God, in the church, in the gathered people of God, um, in believers, is arrogant Christian. And I think we probably all met one. Um, I know that I've been one before, um, and I would say that a lot of you would admit to that as well. But the phrase arrogant Christian, you wouldn't call yourself that, and I wouldn't call myself that, but there was a point in my life when I was, and I am tempted to be that every single day, um, where I think I know it all, and I think I've got it figured out. But listen, if you believe that Christ died for your sins and he has renewed you, there is no possible way for you to be arrogant. It has no place here. That if you are arrogant, then you don't fully understand, one, the depth of your sin and the penalty for that, and two, you don't fully understand what Christ did on the cross and the depth of his love for you. We have one boast, the cross of Christ and his resurrection. That's it. That is the only thing we can be proud of, and it has nothing to do with our own strength and ability. Second, being under the law of Christ produces a heart that pursues God without hesitation. Um, one of the verses that absolutely confused me uh, several years ago and just drove me crazy was Luke 16, 16. Okay? Here's what it says. Um, and it should be on the screen as well. Um, Jesus says, the law and the prophets, okay? The law and the prophets were until John. And since then, the good news of the gospel, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached. And then it just says, and everyone forces his way into it. <laughs> now, if you're like me, if you're not careful, we can take that phrase, and everyone who forces his way into it, and think that that means that we have to work in order to be in the kingdom of God. And I could bore you to death with Greek and the importance of the middle passive uh, in Greek. And there's like one or two of you that would care about that. I would just say, come ask Matthew afterwards. He'll explain it to you. Um, but, but I'm not going to go into all that. So let me just tell you what this means. What does it mean by everyone forces his way into it? Jesus is alluding to an, alluding to an idea that he repeatedly goes back to all throughout the Gospels. He says something very similar in Matthew 13. Matthew, Matthew 13, 44. He says, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, when a man found and, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So a man takes everything he owns, his house, his car, drains his bank account, right? Sells his Xbox, sells it all so that he could buy a field because he believes that there is something in that field that is better than anything he could ever find. He believes that that treasure in that field is the answer to everything. That's where satisfaction is found. That is where worship hope is found. 
So when he says in Luke 16, the law and the prophets were until John, and since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached, and everyone who forces his way into it, he is talking about this single-minded pursuit of himself that previously the law and the prophets, we were responsible to uphold the law, okay? But now the kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is here, and anyone who would see Jesus as more worthy than anything else in the world will force themselves into that kingdom. They will sell everything that they have because there's something about him that's just better. It's better than anything else. He is the goal of everything I do. He is the means. He is the end of every single thing I do because he's just better. That's what it's talking about. So my encouragement to you is this, to kind of close it up. One, if you're a believer, if you would say, I have faith in Christ, I believe that he died, um, believe that his work on the cross was enough for you. Believe that his work on the cross was enough for you, that his blood covers you. That he, listen, not, that he not only loves you, but he likes you. You ever thought about that? That's they, like, sometimes Katie may love me, but she don't like me, right? That God not only loves you, but he likes you. He enjoys you as his son and his daughter. And second, as a believer, that you would examine your own heart. Um, we're going to do communion in a little bit. Examine your own heart. What, do you, what does your mind, what are your thoughts, your motives, and your actions reveal about what you care about? Examine your own heart. In other words, do you love what he loves and hate what he hates? And third, if you're not a Christian and you're here or you're watching, uh, I'm so glad that you're here. But it's important to understand something. You're not, this law of Christ that we're talking about, you are not under that. You are still under a law that condemns you. And God demands that you are accountable to that sin. See, for the believer... We are accountable to that sin as well, but the difference is Jesus has taken that payment for us. He's taken that punishment for us, and, and we are declared free. But, but for you, and, I, and this is, I'm being honest, this isn't an easy thing to say, you are still under a law that condemns you and says that you are guilty, and there is eternal condemnation for you. But that's not the end of your story, is it? Because you're here, not by accident. But there has been a payment that's been paid and God has only asked that you would have faith to believe it, to believe that it's actually real, that God does exist. He did send his son. His son did die, and his son did raise from the grave. And now your response is worship.